Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I am here with Dan Belkowski, who's the founder of Product Tranquility. Dan, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I started my career actually on the engineering side of the fence, so building software. And I got more and more interested in how the software we were building actually created value for customers and then turned into dollars for the business. And as I migrated up into engineering management and product management, that became more and more of a curiosity for me. I got very lucky in my career. I ended up pursuing my MBA at Kellogg. And I found out in retrospect, actually, most business schools don't have pricing courses at all. And Kellogg had a bunch of them. So I took as many as I could, as well as my internship there back in 2011. I was lucky enough to work for the Silicon Valley startup that was doing very well with some mobile apps, and they were getting pressured to build freemium versions. And so that actually turned into my first foray into the real world of dealing with monetization models. So I spent a good part of that summer researching the ins and outs of freemium, how to model it, how it works, when it's successful, when it's not. TLDR, we can get back to this later if you want, but I don't recommend freemium for anyone. Mostly all the benefits can be done with a free trial. But so got to experience that. And then also lucky post-MBA to go start working for a company called SolarWinds. And they ran what was called a volume and velocity type sales model. The kids today might refer to it more as a product-led growth type model. And the benefit of that was we saw a lot of customers in terms of the, the pure volume. So we got to study a lot of transactional data and we acquired a bunch of other bootstrapped technology companies. And so I got to see a lot of the lessons of how not to do pricing and packaging and product decisions. At any one time there, I was working on you know, three to four separate products at the same time, helping both on the value creation and value capture side. So that's a brief intro to me. And I've been running product trade quality for the last two years and now mostly focused on helping high volume B2B SaaS companies with pricing and packaging for new products. So what made you decide to start your own company? What made you decide to start Product Tranquility? That's a great question. So I found that oftentimes inside of companies, you don't necessarily get to work inside what you'd call your genius zone. So that area where you're most effective, oftentimes you're pulled into projects or areas where you're trying to have figure things out which is fine or deal with, for example, previous company I was at on the product management side, all the product management, product strategy work was done, but because engineering ended up being a bottleneck would get pulled into engineering recruiting. And while that's a useful skill and I massively respect people who have to hire and retain engineers was not necessarily where I found myself being put to best use. And so I wanted to become you know, an expert in being able to work inside one area and really become world-class in that. And I thought this was the best opportunity to do so. 
Awesome. Well, let's let's jump into this, you know, specifically pricing packaging. And we're definitely going to get back to freemium because I, I think that that's an interesting topic because you see more and more, you know, companies, especially SaaS companies playing with the freemium model. So we're, we're not going to forget that. We'll put mm-hmm. a little marker there and get back into that. But in general, I, I feel like pricing and packaging are often overlooked and, and maybe undervalued. It, it's in the SaaS product community as a whole. Would you agree with that? Hundred percent, yes. So most companies I found are focused primarily on acquisition to grow their businesses. In the SaaS world, there are really three ways to grow: it's acquisition, monetization, and retention. Most folks are entirely ignoring monetization. It also depends on what stage your business is in. However, if you're really early stage, pre-product market fit, monetization pricing is not your most important concern. Important concern is: are we actually the thing we're building, are we solving real problems? Is it creating value? Will people buy it at any price? And so optimization of the perfect pricing is not the most important at that stage. But I think folks don't necessarily look at pricing as a process. They think of it as a one and done exercise, which to me strikes me a little bit odd because most technology businesses are constantly working on value creation, improving and iterating their product. And so that's one thing I'd like to see change is folks start to embrace pricing as a process just the same way they do their you know, new product innovation development. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned something I want to dig into a little farther that's like, you know, there's cycles. And I, I can totally understand, you know, the importance of monetization when you get to a certain level. But what about at the earliest levels? Like, you know, I, I talked to some startups that are concerned about getting like the right dollar early on and maybe have a higher price point. Like one comes to mind that there was this company I was always trying to buy software from at Pendo. And then at every stage I tried, I went back to them. It seemed like their pricing had increased to the point where it was just like 30% more than I wanted to pay. Then the value was there for me. You know, when you talk to the earliest stage startups, does pricing have a, I would imagine pricing has an impact on them getting those first customers. Like what advice do you give those early stage startups when they think about pricing? Because it it is still important at that level, isn't it? Even, even though you're not maybe looking at it from an optimization standpoint, you're looking at it from a, a penetration standpoint. There's so many decisions involved in the pricing process. So we'll start with, I'll bring the freemium back a, a little bit. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe freemium is a good option, especially especially if you're super early stage, because the ability for you to create a product and then have users, not customers, use the product for free doesn't really tell you if you're creating value. So freemium creates this infinite dollar gap, having people go from zero to whatever price you're going to pay. And so I think it's important that you get over that dollar gap. You charge something. But overall, Companies are generally, this is every single client I talk to immediately focuses on price level. Price level is not the most important consideration. So when I talk to folks and I say I do pricing and packaging, the packaging aspect, which we can unbundle a little bit more, is actually much more important. Who you're charging, what customers you're going after, and how you're charging are much more important to your success than exactly what you're charging. And I don't see a problem with an iteration or a testing of your pricing points because as you evolve, as you add more product functionality, your value is changing as well. So I totally accept the fact that you know you can iterate your your price level over time. Well, well, let's jump into that then. Let's talk about these you know basic foundations of pricing. Like you you talk about the three potential orientations of pricing. Let's start there, and then we can dig back into things like strategies and price levels. Sure. So. 
I'm glad you used the term uh, orientation. So in the world of pricing, there's what's called the, the three C's of pricing. So those would be cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, and customer value-based pricing, often referred to as just value-based pricing. But then and we so, wouldn't have three C's. So yeah, yeah, you wouldn't have three C's. And marketers are big. Three C's, the four P's, the you know, the, those are those are huge. Can't in this be world, CCV. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work. So going back to your point, you know, at that early stage, you want to make sure you have viability. So what many of those early stage companies will do is focus on a cost based model. So I'm paying AWS or Snowflake or whoever else. For, to run this infrastructure. You know, I get a couple of proof of concept deployments. I figure out how much that usage pricing scales. I go, okay, I'm going to add a 10x margin on my infrastructure costs. So that way I can at least guarantee I don't go out of business uh, prematurely. That's where folks usually stay. And that's not a place you want to stay long-term. It does help you understand sort of a price floor below which pricing would be unprofitable. But it doesn't give any consideration to the competitors in the market or your customers' willingness to pay. And honestly, your customers don't care about your costs. So that's not long-term where you want to play. The next level is this competition-based pricing. So understanding that you're not the only player in any market. You have many direct and indirect competitors, including the status quo. Most B2B SaaS companies uh, are actually <laughs> not competing with a bunch of other Silicon Valley-based companies, but mostly are competing against interns, uh, spreadsheets, and Google Docs and, and email. Uh, that tends to be the, <laughs> the competitor that you know is is mostly being disrupted. Or in the marketplace business, everyone's uh, disaggregating Craigslist. Competition-based pricing is useful because as your customers are going through a buying process, they're evaluating these other competitors, and so those competitors are going to effectively set a, a market price. And so it helps to understand that at that level. However, there are still drawbacks at that level because you are effectively giving your competition a giant strategic lever to pull on your behalf. It also assumes your competition knows what you're doing. This was one lesson I learned early on in product management. If you spend too much time looking at your competitors and they have a new feature release, they release all these features, it's usually bad form to assume that they've actually done their homework and those features are going to resonate with their customers. So you have the same problem in the, in the pricing world, which you really don't know if customers value the features that your competitors are putting out or the pricing that, that they have. And depending upon the market, what if you're SMB mid-market, maybe some more of the product-led growth type companies, you have usually more transparent pricing. So, for example, look at like the project management space, the Asana, Monday.com, Trello. That's a, a bloody red ocean market, and all of the pricing is totally transparent. If you're selling enterprise, your ability to do competitive-based pricing is difficult because usually your source of information is prospects in existing deals, which is difficult to assess how trustworthy that information is because you don't know if your know, customers just you know, procurement departments trying to extract some price concessions by telling you, oh, your competitor is charging X when you have no other visibility into what that you know deal entails, SLAs, et cetera. And then finally, again, is this customer value-based pricing or value-based pricing. And really the value-based pricing is focused on in a transaction. This goes back to the Adam Smith. In a free market, 
when a buyer and seller transact, economic value is created. And what customer value-based pricing looks at is how does the buyer and seller divide up the value created in that transaction? Really, that's what the price is at a high level. So I imagine you're a big proponent of value-based pricing and the idea that startups should be thinking about their pricing in a, from a value-based perspective do they do that enough? You know, are they thinking about things? Are they pricing their products from a, a value-based lens? So Simon Kutcher is one of the probably the, the McKinsey of the, the pricing world. I think I heard them refer to value-based pricing as a holy grail. I also view it as sort of a North Star. It's a it's a destination that is difficult to reach. And so this is why I view it as sort of an orientation. Is can we continually move in that direction? to get better at it. I don't see it being used very often. And I think one, there's a lot of confusion about what it is. Is it a framework, a strategy? It requires a lot of confidence because it demands that you have a deep understanding of your customer, your customer segments. That requires costs in terms of time and money to go evaluate. Often in a value-based pricing world, there's a lot of managerial judgment required because market research data won't give you the exact right price. And also it requires a philosophy shared across the organization. So it's not enough for the CEO or marketing or whoever owns pricing in your organization to go do the research and say, this is the ROI that we're creating and thus we can support this price. If that doesn't permeate all the way through the organization down to sales and sales can't stand behind a value-based price, it's not going to work. And so there's a lot of research and organizational alignment that has to happen in a true value-based pricing model. And so that be- creates some impediments for folks to adopt it fully. Yeah. Well, there's there's a few threads I want to go down that just from your answer, like who should own pricing, should product own pricing, you know, segmentation and its importance, and then, you know, orientations versus strategies and pricing levels. Why don't we start with segmentation? You know, you mentioned segmentation. Talk to me about its importance to pricing and packaging and how companies and product managers should think about it. So modern marketing, I got this got beat into me at Kellogg. So modern marketing is built around this concept of segmentation, targeting, and positioning. So understanding as you look at your market, what are the different potential buyer groups and what do they value? Once you have that assessment, understanding which of those are you best positioned to go win and pursue? And then your positioning is how you are going to change the mind of your prospects in that particular market to define for them how you are better than other relevant competitive alternatives, the evidence, help them establish a product category. And so when I think about pricing, pricing is really a function of your positioning. So you need to understand who are you targeting? What is the value that you're creating for them? What are the relevant competitors? And that helps you understand your price levels as well as the packaging that you create. I said a lot there, so I'll let you (laughs) kind of pull out any thread you'd like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk about, well, I think that's a good segue into pricing strategies and price levels and how that impacts packaging. And yeah, I think that's probably a good way to look. Sure. So 
when I think about packaging, I'm going to step back because there's several components that often don't get delineated well as folks dip their toe into the pricing waters. So again, when you talk to most folks about pricing, you know, they think about price level, but as I mentioned before, I focus on pricing and packaging. And so packaging is really four different components, your price metric. So these are the units to which the price is applied, your monetization model or pricing model. So how a customer pays for your product or service, your offer configurations or bundles. So the bundles of different features you're going to create for different segments, as well as potentially price fences. So often means how are you going to charge different customers, different price levels for the same products? So all of those things combine. And I think where this gets really confusing, <laughs> and we can go down a whole rabbit hole here, we could avoid if you don't want to, but usage-based pricing is, is having a moment right now, which I find funny because the electric company has been charging a utility-based model for a hundred years. Apparently yep, yep. software folks have just realized, <laughs> just realized this. Hey, we're, we're good about taking what's worked elsewhere and be like, Hey, this is brand new. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, so the reason why I delineate those four components is because most of the discussions around usage-based pricing are really a combination of a discussion around your price metric and your monetization model. So when I say monetization model or pricing model, that's, for example, a subscription versus pay-as-you-go versus freemium, an auction-based model, for example, like Google Ads, that's a monetization model, right? They have uh, running uh, live auctions. So when you're thinking about usage-based pricing, it's usually a conversation that's combining these two separate concepts of your price metric. Do we charge per seat, per transaction, per database call, whatever it might be, as well as, oh, and now we're going to have the customer pay on a utility basis and bill them in, in arrears. So that's where this conversation can get quite intense in, in helping clients understand these different decisions that, that can be made and, and can move mostly independently of one another. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like we've thrown a lot out here and I'm hoping we're not, there's so many different threads to go down. I hope we're not, we're confusing viewers here uh, or listeners since no one's actually viewing this given it's a podcast. Maybe we step back a minute and, and let's lay the foundation for those people out there who maybe haven't spent as much time with pricing or packaging and maybe start with like, here's the difference. We talked about orientation. So maybe we talk about here's orientations versus pricing strategies versus you know pricing levels and maybe set that that framework. Sure. So as I mentioned before, pricing is a process. And so I think it's important that as we talk about these concepts, you understand where these decisions or definitions fall in the process. So when I talk about the three C's, cost-based pricing, competitive-based pricing, value-based pricing, customer value-based pricing to, to be consistent, that is sort of how you view the pricing exercise as a whole. So that sets the, you know, the terrain, if you will, for how you think about how you create and capture value in the market. That's sort of the preliminary step. Along the way, as we understand potentially our segments that we're going to serve and, and target, those segments may desire different pricing metrics or pricing models. So for example, I used to work in the IT space. And if you're selling to a Fortune 500 company, they want to pay 
either you know back in the day a perpetual license or subscription. But if you're selling to a managed service provider, because of the way their businesses work, that segment of the market requires a pay as you go because that's how their revenues come in from the customers that they're serving, and then they pay their infrastructure providers based upon the revenue that they take in. Not as much of a concern if you're a Fortune 500 company because that's not how your revenue model works. So understanding those first two pieces. Then the third one that you mentioned is the pricing strategy. So pricing strategy in my world is a very specific meaning that's at the tail end of the process when you're deciding on price level. So price level is the number that everyone immediately starts thinking about when thinking about pricing. So we're charging per user. Is it $20 user? Is it $100 user? That's the price level. The pricing strategy, once you've done all your pricing process helps you decide, okay, given where we're trying to play, how are we going to use price level as a strategic lever to go win the market? So there's normally three pricing strategies that are discussed, penetration, neutral, or a skimming strategy. And there are, to give people a sense of examples, I think three of the largest companies in the world each pursue a different pricing strategy. And I think the key thing is that it's not one is superior over the other, but aligning your execution to your strategy is important. So for example, Amazon generally be considered to be running a penetration strategy. So they've made it very clear they're going to be a low cost, low margin type business, highly profitable, but because they run tremendous volume. And so they're going to disrupt the entire retail industry with this penetration strategy, at least in in their core business. We'll separate out AWS because that runs uh, fairly differently. Sort of on a neutral strategy would be a company like Microsoft. Normally, they're about on par. They do some very interesting things with other bundling, et cetera. There's a long history on the success of the Microsoft Office package because there's success with bundling. But in general, from a pricing level, Microsoft is about neutral. And then Apple generally runs what we'd call a skimming strategy. And you see this a lot with hardware products. And so the, the iPhone is a perfect example where you'll see they have their newest iPhone they'll release at a stream price premium and then as they release future models, they'll gradually reduce those the price of that model over time as they introduce new models above it. And this allows them to capture customers who absolutely have to have the latest and greatest. And then over time, as you know, that market is tapped out, they're able to lower the price sequentially to tap lower and lower levels of the market's willingness to pay. Awesome. I think that was a great summary of that. Now, let's layer on top of that packaging. So- Again, your your packaging is a set of decisions. So between your price metric, your monetization model, your offer bundles or configurations and price fences. And so I think most of the attention, at least the questions that I get from clients is around selection of, of pricing metrics. So this is, do we charge by seat, by API transaction, by you know, document whatever it is that your business is involved in. And I think the important thing is, what are you trying to achieve with your selection of a pricing metric? You want to make sure it aligns with your customer's business requirements and perceived value of the product. It allows your company to capture fair value in a predictable fashion. And it minimizes operational friction of both the buyer and the seller in that One, both sides have visibility and feel that they can exert some reasonable control over the metric. And so oftentimes what happens is there's a set of potential ways you could charge. 
And there's a process by which you run through a set of filters to understand if they match those objectives. Thanks. Let's get back to product, right? Uh, we talked about who owns pricing. Who do you think should own pricing in a SaaS company? And maybe that changes as companies mature and grow, but take me through the different cycles. Who do you feel like should own pricing from the earliest stages to like the later stages you know, of a startup or even a public company? How would you approach that? Yeah. So my view is that in, in larger established companies, product marketing should own pricing. Now, this is not by any means uh, the norm, and it definitely does change by stage. So OpenView actually had some very interesting data where they had done surveys over time of how ownership's changed. Overall, it's usually owned by the founders at the earliest stages. And so you think about companies like less than 20 million, most of the time it's still owned by the CEO. Sometimes product or sales owns it. Even though at the, say, IPO stage, 100 million plus, still less than 50% of companies have a dedicated pricing person or pricing team. And I mentioned before, product marketing in early stage companies is not usually even a position. And if they bring a product marketing person in, usually that person is more focused on messaging and more demand gen type focus than strategic pricing activities. Ultimately, at any stage, pricing is so important and affects all areas of the business. Usually CEOs are still involved or at least have a veto authority. But I think the problem you know, that I've seen is that normally it's not owned explicitly by anybody, nor is there a process. And that's unfortunate because there's so many stakeholders in pricing. When you think about finance, sales, product, marketing, customer success, if you don't have clear ownership or a process and you have all these owners all of your conversations and attempts to, to change or modify are going to get lost because there's no uh, clear authority. And I think this is one of the reasons why it tends to get ignored or, or avoided because it, there's so many strong opinions. If nobody's really seen as the pricing expert backed by a process and you know the granted authority from the executive team to break you know, log jams, it's much like product management. It's the reason product management exists because you've got so many stakeholders in the business that maybe want to pull in different directions. And part of the role of the product manager is to be that empathetic ear, understand the customer perspective, understand the perspective of all the stakeholders in the business and push forward the best possible solution, given all the constraints that they face. And I think you have the same thing in pricing as well. How early should companies be putting in a product process, right? I mean, is it is this like you know, as soon as they start selling a product? I mean, how much emphasis should be put on pricing at what stage? Um, oh, so you said a product process. You mean a pricing process? Yeah, sorry, um, pricing process, yes. So I think it makes sense to, at least at the executive level, have a quarterly assessment of pricing right off the bat. Now, that doesn't mean you're going and running full you know, market research studies, but getting the muscle built early that pricing needs to be revisited. We're constantly revisiting all of the, you know, the features and, and value we're creating, you know, and that can be during you know, quarterly planning. Or Yeah. So what does that assessment look like? So say you're doing it quarterly, even twice a year, what does that assessment look like? So one is, as I mentioned before, you have so many different stakeholders in the pricing process. So, you know, we could kind of go around that table 
and look at what the motivations of each of the people are at that table. So you're in an early stage, maybe you don't have a CFO, or maybe the CEO is running double duty um, as the, the head of finance. But, yeah, or you have an accountant or a controller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that person or that stakeholder is incredibly concerned about margins, runway, and for like how much how much cash do we have till we go out of business uh, potentially? Also potentially, what do our numbers need to look like in order for us to raise an venture capital round to IPO to please Wall Street? So the finance aspect is incredibly important. Obviously, sales is held to a revenue number for quota for the quarter. And there's always interest from sales in using price as a lever to help them meet their quota. I don't believe that CROs or VPs of sales should own pricing, not because they're bad people. I just don't think the incentives are aligned for long-term company profitability, but they're an important stakeholder to understand. what Because the, the sales reps every day are talking to customers and price is usually being brought up in the conversation, whether or not it's actually the most important part of that deal. So in most B2B sales, price is actually usually about the third or the fourth most important thing uh, on the list, Uh, but guaranteed price is getting brought up in every deal. And so sales is an important stakeholder at the table because they're getting that direct feedback. And so that should be getting worked its way in a formalized process back to, again, whoever owns pricing Customer success has a aspect of it because they need to be able to, depending, customer success is, is still a immature function, so it differs quite dramatically between organizations. But if they're held to, for example, a, a gross retention or a net dollar retention dollar value, it's important that the price metrics and the packaging is aligned so that there is an upsell path or a growth path that does not create undue friction for customers. And so their perspective is incredibly important. And obviously marketing, depending upon your positioning, if you are the low cost provider, if you're the low cost uh, leader in your, from an operational perspective in your market, accentuating your pricing in your demand gen activities may be incredibly important. And so keeping a close eye on that, new competitors that have come in, et cetera. So each of those stakeholders has something to bring to the conversation based upon things that have happened in the market in the intervening time. And again, whether that's once a quarter. So how, how do you have this conversation, right? I, you know, we went through all the major stakeholders and their concerns, right? How does that all roll up to either, uh, okay, pricing's good, or, hey, we should change pricing in this way? So I think the first thing is, one, aligning on objectives, and what is it that you're really trying to optimize? So that's one of the things I find most, given that description I just mentioned, where you have these different stakeholders who have potentially different drivers that they're, they're trying to optimize towards, making sure that you have alignment of, do we think that changing price is going to affect what we think our key objectives are going to be, and making sure that that's the first decision that gets made. If you do not have a, this is where it becomes important. If you do not have a pricing process or a leader Again, this goes back to the point I made about a product manager, right? It's very clear the product manager's responsibility is to keep everyone abreast of the roadmap, the situation, what's coming, what's not, what's changed for product. If you don't have you know, somebody designated, it becomes very difficult to drive that conversation because then it's just, oh, everyone kind of brings their ideas to the table. And so if the CEO is going to own pricing, 
they need to be driving this conversation in the quarterly business meetings or in whatever the, the cadence might be. And with the intent of making sure that pricing is optimized as best as it can be to meet both the objectives and the underlying concerns of the constituents involved in the process. 100%. Got it. So we talked about you know CEOs potentially owning the process. At what point do you think companies should be bringing in a dedicated pricing expert onto their product marketing team? Like at, at what point is that valuable for companies? Because obviously you know, someone that has deep experience in pricing, you know, could help a lot in that, you know, optimization aspect, right? You talked about acquisition, you know, optimization of pricing, retention, that optimization aspect could be, you know, helped by a professional. At one point, would you advise people to say, hey, you know, you should have a pricing expert on your team? Yeah. So in-house, so there's there's two different dimensions to that question. One is, you know, where do folks really start to take pricing seriously. And that's you know, normally at north of a $10 million mark, because that's where you start to create serious additional modules or potentially additional, you know, their second or third products. But those tend to be a little bit more of a one-off events. For a full-time pricing person, normally not until you're at at least, I'd say, $100 million in revenue. Now, you may have a product marketing person who has ownership of that, but you know, there's not enough pricing work necessarily on a, a day-to-day basis to make that someone's uh, full-time job. Once you get north of 100, 200 million in revenue, that's where you start to see a dedicated pricing person or a dedicated pricing team because there's enough pricing questions floating around the building that's become somebody's full-time job. Got it. Use a consultant in the meantime, and how would you approach it? Or is it just make do with someone that has some of that expertise? I mean, that it feels like this is important enough that we should be putting more effort into it than we do at that 10 to 100 million point, right? Or even before 10, I would argue. Yeah. So again, it depends upon you know where you are in, in your stage, right? Because you can get a long way on creating the actual product that creates value, some monetization scheme that does not have your company go out of business but it still allows you to grow and focusing on that acquisition go-to-market model. In the interim, I think there's, obviously, if there's different project work, you know, I'm speak to my own, you know, yes, talk to Dan, I'll come in and help you as on, on an advisory basis. Also, I think the amount of content that's, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to do as well is push out some of this knowledge you know, into the world in more digestible forms where it's currently buried in very deep uh, textbooks and uh, market research uh, study reports. So depending upon, you know, the significance of the problem, it may help to do, you, you know, in the market research study, they can vary in cost dramatically. You know, if I was talking to a friend of mine who used to work at General Mills and she's like, look, if we if we change the price of Cheerios and you know, the revenue drops 1%, nobody gets their bonuses for the next five years. And so those giant CPG companies will spend you know, millions of dollars on pricing studies. You do not need to do that for most of the situations that these early stage companies are in, where you can reduce or mitigate risk you know, with a few customer conversations, very light surveys. I think the, the major problem that I see, and this maybe ties back to another question that you, you threw in, which is you know, product managers tend to be focused on the, hey, is this feature valuable for you? But 
if I ask you, hey, will you buy this? You know, is this widget valuable versus will you pay $10 for this widget? Those are two very different answers to the question. And I think we can get a long way, especially at those early stages, if product managers learn how to have those willingness to pay conversations much earlier in the process. Meaning, is this widget worth $10 to you as opposed to like, do you like this? I would never phrase it that way because that's not that's not usually how people think about it. People tend to think about value in ranges and in comparison to alternatives. So say we're, we're working on a new feature and I propose it to, you know, I'm walking a, a customer through a, a potential demo, some screenshots and say, hey, we're thinking about adding this as an add-on. It'd be an additional $5 per user for your, your team. You know, potentially that's one way to phrase it. Or you can ask some more range questions of what would be affordable, what would be expensive uh, for this feature as a series of questions. In general, I've heard, you know, whatever people say is expensive is what your pricing should be. Agree? Generally, yes. Got it. Got it. <laughs> it's it's they interesting will, when you they start will throwing be, psychology into pricing. They will begrudgingly pay it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of behavioral psychology involved in the pricing world. Uh, one of my favorites is, you know, most of the SaaS world, we have good, better, best packaging. So, you know, normally a, a very slim down offer, maybe a prosumer type offer, one for the, maybe the mid-market and one for the enterprise as an example. And how people actually make decisions, they've done a bunch of studies on this in the, in the psychology world, is they actually don't decide which option is best for them, but they decide by eliminating alternatives. So first they look at the alternative that's the absolute worst fit for them. And then they eliminate the second alternative by which of the two left are closest to the one they already eliminated. And so, so you have different behavioral economic activities going on there that are, are very interesting in, in the pricing world that you can take advantage of in your, your research studies as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to get back to freemium and PLG. Let's start with freemium. I mean, I know you touched on that, but you know, talk to me more about why people shouldn't do freemium. So freemium is a monetization model or a pricing model, as we mentioned. Almost every argument I've heard for freemium can be achieved with a 14 to 30 day free trial plus free trial extensions. That's usually what I recommend, except in a few rare cases. Freemium causes a bunch of problems internally. So it's difficult to move customer. Well, say in the freemium world, I want to be very careful. A free person using the software referred to as a user, a paying person I refer to as a customer. So it's difficult to move users from free. However, in most of these freemium models, what you see is there's only about one to 3% conversion from free to paid. And so there's this constant temptation where you have the executive team looking at this giant pool of people who are using the product. And there's this constant temptation of, hey, can we do more to move those people? And a lot of that energy is wasted. There definitely are people who will convert, but it's very hard. You know, 3% is like world-class in the freemium model. And so what that also dictates is you have an extremely large market. So if you're if you're if you're only selling to the global 2000 and you're trying to do a freemium that doesn't make any sense because you're only convert you know 1% okay that gives you uh, 20 customers and a freemium model. Also, I think the argument that most annoys me recently is there's this illusory improvement to the CAC metric. So CAC is a customer acquisition cost. And so the argument this is the argument as, as I've heard it so when we have a freemium approach, it helps us 
acquire customers because they get more experience with the product before they have to purchase. And this lowers the amount of activation energy it takes from lead to sign up because then we can just dump them in this freemium pool and eventually they convert. It may look better, but that's only usually, it's just, you're just playing around with numbers on the income statement because usually R&D investment is not treated as a marketing expense, except if you go that model, you need to treat whatever investment you're putting into the freemium approach as a marketing expense. So it doesn't actually improve your customer acquisition costs. So as I mentioned, there's a few rare cases where freemium makes sense to be a viable option. You need to have an incredibly large market. Again, if you're only expecting 1% to convert to paid, a specific competitive environment. So at the time I was working on this as a research project during my internship, the company that was held up as the king of the freemium approach was Evernote. But if you look closely at Evernote, they had a very tough competitive environment because Microsoft, as I mentioned, with their amazing bundling strategy, gave away OneNote, which is the exact same product for free. And so Evernote was put in a position where it had no choice. It had to do a freemium approach because the exact same product was being given away for free by the large, one of the largest technology companies in the world. And so it really requires your assessment of what are your competitors doing. There are specific situations where freemium may make sense. In some developer-focused products, it can make sense. So where those break down with like a 14 to 30-day free trial is if a developer product that you know I have to connect with the APIs or something, I may be in development cycles for an incredibly long time using it in like a staging environment. So in that case, it might make sense to have a freemium tier that is sort of stage only useful in a staging environment. If you tried to migrate it to production, it wouldn't really make any sense. Um, so that way the developers can get acclimated to it and use it in, their, in the development process. Yeah, and it's almost you know, an aspect of value then because there's not a lot of value until that product gets moved from staging to production and has a huge amount of users, but they need a solution at that point. Is that a way to look at it? Yeah, 100%. I, I see a lot of bad <laughs> excuses thrown up. Usually also when, when people talk about freemium, they, they're like, oh, well, we'll get all this data. And then you ask, you know, it's, it's like the underpants gnomes in South Park. It's like, we get all this data, question mark, profit. So, <laughs> so, you know, understanding, you know, what is the value of that free user? Potentially, you know, the, the other way people approach it is like, oh, well, there's advertising base. But in that case, it's not true freemium. Like I don't view uh, Google, like Google search as- Yeah, or freemium. Facebook. Facebook's not- Freemium. Yeah, it's not freemium. They're multi-sided networks, which is a different monetization model. You know, it's a it's a multi-sided network with a auction-based ad model. That's how they're you know making money. It's not a freemium model. And so once you have an advertising base, well, it's not you know true freemium. You know, potentially, you know, as well. The other case I think it might be valid is if you need, you know, it's nothing worse than showing up to a party and no one else is there, and you're like you're like oh well, everyone else is going to wait in an hour. So some of these community type platforms. I think Slack's a good example. I think Slack made a smart decision because it's like, well, if I'm the only person on my my chat, it's not a useful product at all. And so the value is sort of having other people there. And those, so there's there's a couple of rare situations where these they think these things can work. But generally, I steer people to a 14, 30 day free trial. Give your sales team a process to request extension keys, and normally that'll cover 99 of the cases without totally destroying your business. You know, what, one thing on that end, what about the perspective of using freemium or a free tier? And it doesn't necessarily need to be like thought of as freemium, but a whole free tier to stop the competition coming up from the low end, right? 
So, you know, you're thinking about enterprise charging, you know, maybe a premium price point, price erosion from low-end competitors that are providing, you know, a substandard product and giving it away at a much lower price point, say like 10% of your price point. Could you eliminate that by, in essence, cannibalizing the low end with a free tier? That's a that's a fantastic question. So this is a really this is actually a really challenging problem. And Clayton Christensen's whole innovators dilemma is exactly built around this conundrum because most of the time people do not defend the low end and they're not incentivized to. I don't think the freemium is the right approach. In that case, I would try to figure out: is there a low end package? that we could sell at that level. I don't think free is the right answer. It would be, is there an opportunity to you know, meet that company sort of head to head on a price parity or maybe slightly below? I would not go to free. So now, you know, we talked about freemium and free and as a tier where it might make sense and, and how you feel it generally doesn't make sense. Let's talk about like, what insights do you have for people that are product-led growth-driven and how that impacts packaging and pricing? So in general, as I mentioned before, at SolarWinds, we called it a volume and velocity model, but you know, the rebranding of everything in marketing now is product-led growth. You're welcome. You- <laughs> that definitely pen- helped with that one. Yeah. Pen- Pendo is specifically responsible for that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so- some impact. I wouldn't say we're entirely <laughs> responsible. I like thinking of product-led as opposed to product-led growth because growth just applies you like customer acquisition. And there's a lot of ways you can use product data to make your business better. But, you know, <laughs> we'll get back to the question at hand. Well, thank you, Eric. So in general, so you were talking about product-led growth and the freemium approach. So in general, I would say, again, free trials generally better than than freemium. The whole concept of a volume and velocity or product-led growth model is based on the premise of software as an experience good. And so this is a fancy term that economists use that basically says your perception of a product's value changes as you gain experience with it. And so the free trial has that aspect to it. And the idea is that can we offset some of the resistance that customers have to jump into a deal, change some of the focus of our marketing organization from focused on non-product actions. If you think of traditional enterprises, you know, if you're CMO, it's like, well, how many white paper downloads did we get? Or how many signups at the you know, new emails at the event trade show did we get? Instead, trying to drive them into the product to lower that activation energy between, oh, hey, now you really understand the value. And so now the price is not as much a barrier, or we can have a more qualified conversation because now your sales representatives, when they reach out to prospects, those prospects actually want to talk to them. Great. You know, it's not that I have a bunch of you know pipeline of people that don't want to talk to me. These are people who are actually actively getting value out of the product. And so when I reach out and say, hey, do you need help? Those conversations actually are able to happen and move forward in a productive fashion. Questions, you know, the relationship fundamentally changes. All of this is premised on keeping your customer acquisition cost low. So if, if I can drive customers into the product, they can see the value for themselves. I have a lighter touch with my sales cycle and the sales relationship. I'm able to you know, reduce all those costs because you know, sales cycles are one of the highest drivers of customer acquisition costs in a B2B model. And 
you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, pricing and packaging before. Generally, I think of a product-led growth company, if you have a annual average contract value less than 25,000 is probably a fit. It gets a little bit less appealing above a 25K price point. But the main reason for that as well is that what you're trying to do with product-led growth is usually a bottoms-up sales motion versus top-down. And so as those price points get higher, now you're exceeding what that you know frontline manager or director can put directly on his budget. They maybe have buying committees, maybe it has to go to an executive level. You have to get you know, procurement significantly involved. And so you start to lose some of those other So it's less benefits. than 25 grand. It's like when procurement gets involved, it's when pricing committees are there. It's when the complexity of the sale reaches a certain level. Yeah. I, there's a lot of drivers to it, but hundred percent that, you know, how much of this is going to be changes to internal you know, for example, we're talking on Zoom right now, you know, and I can go sign up for Zoom and I can use it immediately. I don't necessarily, if I'm going to go buy an ERP from you know, Oracle, <laughs> well, that has to hook into a bunch of other systems. You know, entire teams have to be trained on it. It has to, it, there's going to be integration. It just doesn't make any sense to sell an ERP in a product led growth motion because of all of those factors. Maybe someone's doing it. I'm not totally aware. If they are, uh, God bless them. I wish them the best of luck, but I just don't see how that works. But going back to the packaging, you know, your packaging has to be simple. And what that does, as well as a focus on lowering the customer acquisition costs, it allows customers to self-select into an offering, which increases the velocity of every sales opportunity. And again, allows your sales personnel to spend less time on any particular deal. Yeah. I think the ERP thing is interesting because I think that's where it goes like to some of the product-led factors. Like, because, well, you're not going to implement a new ERP is kind of like, hey, you know, download this, install it, try it. You know, if you like it, buy it. There is an opportunity for upsell and cross-sell, you know, different modules and different functions within that sale, right? On the enterprise. So I think the enterprise can take advantage of product-led motions, just not necessarily in the same way that a really low price point, you know, would take advantage of them. I agree. I think the other thing that gets challenging as I've seen companies try to you know, pivot or tack on a product-led motion is it can be very difficult for you know, a, a CEO or executive team to care about the sale of a $10,000 add-on module when they're busy selling seven, eight-figure you know, deals to give that the amount of attention and investment that it requires to really drive that successfully. So I think that's where you know, there's an internal organizational you know, commitment, right? It's like, hey, we're going to have a, a part of the organization that's focused on driving that motion because otherwise all the energy gets sucked up by the larger enterprise dollar value business. Yeah. And maybe that goes back to uh, pricing strategies too, where it could just be on a user basis and you get a small number of users, but then it grows, right? Yeah. Like, you know, a communications layer, you know, like Slack added on to something as a you know, as a cross-sell or an upsell. You know, there. I think there's ways that make sense, but I, I do agree with you. Yeah, most B2B software, you know, needs continuous improvement in onboarding. And, you know, that includes getting other users within a sale to all, you know, who have already bought the product, you know, onboarded, ramped up. Onboarding is one of those areas, you know, I lived this as a product manager for many years. It's just never done. And it's critical in a product-led growth process. So I, I think we talked about a lot today. 
you know, one of the things we didn't dig into is product management or product marketing, who should own pricing or in packaging to some extent. I think we can make arguments on, on either side of that. But if if you're talking with someone right now that is either in product marketing or product management and owns pricing or packaging or both, but doesn't have a lot of experience there, you know, what insights, what quick, you know, what's the top three things you would tell them? So when you think of packaging, it's four different components, pricing metric, your bundles, price fences, your monetization model. And I emphasize the packaging aspect because when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. Your good packaging, it helps competitive comparison, differentiation, allows customers to self-select, allows you to clearly communicate your value proposition and help you justify your price. Now, you mentioned something and we haven't specifically talked about the yet. So let's just cover that quickly too. Fences. You know, it's come up a few times. Talk to people about what fences are and why they're important. Yeah. So I'll use a simple example. If you've ever attended a matinee at a cinema, you've seen a price fence. If you've ever shown your student ID to get a discount at a restaurant or wherever, you've seen a price fence. So the idea of a price fence is certain people, either based on identity, time of purchase, or volume, will pay a different price for the same exact product. So if I go to the if I go to the movie theater before five o'clock on a Wednesday, well, they don't have a lot of business. So they say, okay, people who attended that time get a discount. If I show my veterans or student card, I get a discount. In the B2B uh, world, usually what we see it is a, a volume price fence, also sometimes referred to as a price structure. This is where the language is not precise in this world and is somewhat annoying, but usually that's where you see the the tiered price model. So as I if I buy hundred seats, the per user fee is different than if I buy a thousand seats versus if I buy ten thousand seats, and that's because I'm I'm changing the volume. Effectively, all those seats are using the same product, but that's considered a price fence as well. What else do you see as far as price fences in the B two B world? So normally, you see them distinctly in the good, better, best packaging as well. So normally, that's you know, because if I'm looking at sort of the the good, let's say the the good package is ten dollars a user. And then there's you know, $20 a user for the, the better package that can be considered a, a price fence as well. Got it. Well, great. Well, this has been a blast. I know we've, uh, we've covered a lot today. There's a lot more. I mean, I think we can dig into detail in a lot of different areas, but we got to wrap it up sometime. So <laughs> let's, let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about you, know, you Dan. What's, what's your favorite product? Every day I've been using Duolingo. They've got me hooked. Their onboarding and engagement model is bar none the best. And I used to complain that they needed to really work on their monetization model, but they eventually hooked me and now I'm a paying customer. So I've got a 190 day streak going on Duolingo currently. And I'm, <laughs> I can't say my Spanish is, <laughs> is, is, is anywhere near world class yet, but they definitely have me addicted to the product. Hey, a great Pittsburgh company. I have a soft spot in my heart for those Pittsburgh companies. One final question for you. Three words to describe yourself. Analytical, determined, and direct. Awesome, Dan. I enjoyed this. It was great. I loved it too, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. 